another bank just shut down. Regulators today abruptly closed Signature Bank. Kinds of uncertainty surrounding the banking sector tonight. Markets tumbled in North America and Europe, dragged down by banking stocks and alarm about Credit Suisse. The two biggest geopolitical rivals of the U.S. want to counterbalance the dominance of the dollar worldwide, and Russia is increasingly embracing the yuan. I am an ardent defender and a lifelong defender of civil liberties. And Bitcoin is both an exercise and a guarantee of those freedoms. All right, so thank you for tuning in to another episode of Bitcoin versus the banks. And I'm joined here by Clint Russell, who's a actually a fellow podcaster. He runs a show called Liberty Lockdown. How's it going, Clint? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, the world's insane, but uh, business has never been better <laughs> in the podcast <laughs> world. <laughs> That's a really great way to put it. And uh, in fact, like this is a show that, I mean, our focus is Bitcoin, uh, but part of what I do is related to politics. And um, frankly, we, we haven't really done enough shows uh, relating to politics. And, you know, I figure like what better person to bring on than you, a guy that hosts a show called Liberty Lockdown. And I know you really kind of get in the weeds of, you know, sort of what's going on in the, in the U.S. government. So, um, you know, the, the first question I kind of want to ask you is like, where do you stand politically? Like if you had to identify yourself somewhere on the spectrum, I feel like I know how you're going to answer this, but yeah. uh, why don't you t tell people? Uh, I mean, to be specific, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, um, but, you know, Ron Paul libertarian. Uh, I'm a Mises caucus member, LP national member. Um, so I'm a libertarian, I'm a second gen libertarian. My dad found... Uh, you know, uh, some of the, some of the greats, Mises and Rothbard, et cetera, in the, in the 1970s, I was born in the eighties. So I was, I was indoctrinated from a young age and, uh, life experiences only, uh, reinforce those beliefs. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious what year were you born? Cause I was born in 84. 82. Okay. So yeah, so we're, we're, we're the same generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I the, latchkey, in the, States. The, the last, the last of the latchkey kids. Well, you know, I, I grew up mostly in Canada. That's where I live now. I, I've been in the States for a little bit of time, but uh, here in Canada, as you know, like the, the culture is quite different, especially politically. Like we're, I mean, for one, we have multiple parties. We're not a you know, the two party system like you guys have. Um, and frankly, I mean, maybe things are changing a little bit, but like we have, we, we put a lot of faith into our government. Would you, would you feel like Americans are the same way or no? A uh, lesser extent than Canadians, but yes, far, far too much faith uh, in the government. So do you feel like over the past few years, and I, I ask this because of the name of your podcast, that your views have kind of shifted over the past, let's say three, maybe five years or so? I don't know if they've shifted as much as I've um, embraced them more deeply. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've, I've believed that the government was a net negative and ultimately an evil upon the planet for a very long time. Uh, I just didn't fear them per se. You know, I, I feared, I feared for people in the Middle East, <laughs> you know, like I feared for the, the, the victims of the military industrial complex, but I didn't so much fear for the American people aside from the drug war. But since I don't do drugs, I figured I'd be okay. Uh, 2020 taught me that uh, I was, I was a, too optimistic <laughs> that, that in fact they are, uh, you know, their very existence is a danger to me. So like, I mean, I'm sure you're well aware that there's a lot of people around the world that are just sort of anti-American for like for a variety of reasons. And so I like that there's people out there like yourself who I'm sure identify as like, like you're, you're proud of being American, 
but at the same time you acknowledge like yeah like our country like we've you know we've we've made our mistakes as every country has but it's like you acknowledge that and you're like your whole podcast is all about like how can we essentially better our country and sort of do better for the world all right yo for sure and i you know despite all of my critiques of america i still think that its foundational principles are as as beautiful as anything ever crafted by man you know outside of the bible or some other religious scripture it's they're absolutely incredible words the the problem is is that the american people have not lived up to it and uh you know even though it's a, a very lofty goal i'm doing my damnedest to try and get them to to live up to the not just the words but the sacrifices made to uphold those beliefs uh, belief in the individual not the collective belief in property rights not 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 uh you know theft so it's a challenge it's an uphill battle and and you know now to get into your other half of the question or half of your point <clears throat> you know what what the american empire has done throughout my lifetime has been uh, in my opinion the the most egregious actions of any government on earth so i you know it's it's people people struggle with this they you know they'll they'll hear me say that they'll hear me hear they'll hear me say one half of that and either assume I'm some sort of nationalistic, I love America, they can do nothing wrong guy, or I hate America. Now, if you if you listen to both halves of that, though, you understand I have a very nuanced view of what America is and what it could be. And, and that's exactly what you need to have. It's, for one, you know, you do a long form podcast as I do, and that gives people an opportunity to like, to listen to you really sort of spew everything you have, right? It, mm-hmm. it lets people sort of contextualize what you're thinking, what you're feeling. And I think that's Kind of like one of the things that's missing in mainstream media, you know, somebody gets on for 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever it is. And like, you don't really know like what their values are, what they stand for. And that's kind of the beauty of this sort of, you know, let's, let's call it this type of news that exists is that you and I can like actually say what we think people can like kind of filter through that. I mean, they're going to take away their own conclusions from it, but at the end of the day, it's like, I can be as honest as I want. You can be as honest as, as you want. And people that are willing to listen, um, you know, I think they can actually take something away from that. And and I love the fact that, you know, you, you're a patriot, but at the same time, you're critical of your state, which is how most people should be. And and not necessarily that, like, you know, anybody is, let's say, uh, downtrodden on their, you know, their country. It's more like, you know, if you're not critical of it, then you're not really given an, an opportunity to improve, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's... It's the same thing with love, to be honest. You don't you don't love an addict by handing them more drugs. You you try and help, you know? And and that's how I look at this this country at this point. Is like, I love this country. That is why I'm critical. If I was if I was enabling it, if I was just, you know, fluffing it up and giving it all these kind words and not and and ignoring all of the evil that it commits, then that's not love. That's not love at all. So you know, I really, really do love this country and I love the American people and I love people all over the world, to be honest. But um, there is something unique and special about Americans, in my opinion, that, you know, the, the fact that they that they are the the you know, ancestors or the the uh, the lineage of a bunch of lunatics that that hated the government so much that they sailed across the fucking Atlantic <laughs> Ocean when when it was like scurvy and all sorts of, uh, you know, absolute treachery uh, was in front of them. And they're like, nope. We want, we want to have religious freedom and speech rights and all these other things uh, so badly that we're going to risk dying on the high seas. It's like, these people are savages, man. So, you know, I'm trying to honor my, my heritage, honor my, my 
lunatic <laughs> great great grandfather that came i mean for me it was it was from germany that they came across in world war one but um you know i think all americans have that in them and and uh yeah i i just i love i love i love that story i love i think it's a beautiful way of viewing the world i know there's still people in the rest of the world that fight for freedom and, and sacrifice too so i'm not trying to to undersell that but the american foundation is one of just pure pure rebellion and i you know i still i still carry that uh, that flame within me that's really well put and sort of that belligerent history that you guys have kind of explains why your uh your liberty to you know to own guns and to to hold them at home and wherever even to carry with you is sort of sort of you know entrenched within your society like people view it as such an important part of it and like even though there's this you know like 200 plus year gap between when the constitution was formed until now like i think so many people like yourself like it's just this like uh american ideal that you kind of hold with you and it's almost like just innate because you're american uh, it is and and i think that it is it is sacrosanct <laughs> it is that important um and you know i didn't own a gun until the lockdowns began so like i know a lot of people will think that i'm a hypocrite <laughs> but i just never wanted one because i i grew up in california and i was like I was like, the government's not tyrannical. I don't need one. Um, and then the government got tyrannical and I was like, oh shit, I need one. I need one real, real, real bad. Uh, so <laughs> like, I'm not even exaggerating. The, the week of lockdowns was when I got my first firearm. Um, but that's, uh, to your point, I think that it is, it is absolutely fundamental, not just to the American ethos and the American way of life, but to free people the world over, the free, you know, just free people, period is that you have to have the capacity to defend yourself. You have to. And if you don't, then you are simply at the mercy of the kindness of your government. And if you are at all privy to the nature of government, you should not be overstating or, or believing that their kindness will be eternal. It is never eternal. <laughs> they always get crazy. So the people that, uh, and I know, you know Canadians are not nearly as big a gun culture as, as Americans are, um, but the, those that don't understand the value of the Second Amendment, those that say, oh, you don't need an AR-15. I mean, how many, how many deer do you need to shoot? It ain't about deer, friend. It has never been about deer. And anybody that tells you otherwise is lying to you or they're trying to soft sell their desire to own an AR-15. The AR-15 is about defending ourselves from the government. That's why we have these firearms. This is why we ought to have automatic guns too. The list of firearms that we should be able to own should match, if not surpass, that of the artillery and arsenal that the federal government owns. That is my litmus test for whether or not you believe you are equal to your government. If they are a representative of you and of your belief system, well then, you should have the same right to defense that they do. And if you don't, well then you aren't free. You are their, their property ultimately, and you live and you exist and you persist at their leisure. That is not freedom. So you said that you, you bought a gun uh, when, the, when the lockdown started. So like, what is it that, I'm curious, like, what is it you felt you had to defend from? Was it like somebody from the government knocking on your door trying to, let's say, arrest you? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was first and foremost, I, I ran and operated my business out of my home. So like if they if they got really crazy about lockdowns and shutting down businesses that were no longer mandatory, theoretically, they could have said, well, you're not allowed to work from home either, even though that'd be utter nonsense. There, There's a litany of reasons, though, that we were facing a real risky period there. I mean, 
there was a time where the Democrats in this country were almost 50% of them were supporting jail time for people that refused a vaccine. You know, (laughs) like that happened. Okay. So uh, yeah, I need to be able to defend myself if, if we ever actually have a majority of this country that is endorsing truly evil, tyrannical stuff where they just say, we're going to send out people to inject stuff in your body. And if you refuse, well, then we're going to violently remove you from your home and put you in jail. My answer to that is no, I'm not doing that. And, And so I wanted to be able to defend myself. Option number three, you have lockdowns and you have economic turmoil and you have people that are starving potentially. And they're, they're out trying to, you know, basically scavenge for survival. Well, I need to be able to defend my property. I owned a very nice house in Carlsbad, California. I wanted to make sure I could defend it. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there was a ton of, a ton of reasons or the fact that like we had no idea how long this thing was going to last or if there was going to be riots, it, there was freaking riots, uh, throughout that entire summer, you know, like uh, people, people lost their minds. So it's uh, yeah, it it went from an optional second amendment type of guy to a mandatory one. That really fascinating, Uh, especially because like here, I would say sort of Canada as a, as a whole, we were even more strict as a nation, as far as like, you know, the limitations we put upon people. I think we were pretty quick to say, like, if you wanted to go out at some point, you needed to have a COVID passport. Um, we're not going to get into all the COVID stuff too much, but like the the point I'm trying to make is that you guys were a lot as a whole country, a lot more sort of liberal minded than we were. Um, and yet we didn't see maybe the same level of resistance, so to speak. But I think, I think a part of that comes back to like what we're talking about, having that sort of history of, um, you know, being anti-government or at least hoping that the government doesn't meddle in your affairs, you know, all that much. I'm curious. So you, you essentially, you were part of that mass exodus from California to other states, um, was it, was it the COVID lockdown specifically that drove people out or was it something a little bit different? No, it was the COVID lockdowns. I mean, it, it was terrible. It, they shut down for a time, for a very long time, they shut down all restaurants. They shut down all or most, the vast majority of small businesses. It was, they shut down the beaches for God's sakes. You know, I was an avid, uh, beach volleyball player. Um, so <laughs> I mean, the overreach was extraordinary. For a time, they, they told us not to, to walk outside. They said, right. don't exercise outside, which is lunacy because the COVID was never a danger to anybody outside because the sun just annihilates it. So, I mean, yeah, it was horrible. Now, now, to your point, the broader United States was not as bad as Canada, but California and New York, they were right up there with them. So I was in California, unfortunately, and I'm not anymore which is sad because I've spent 37 years of my life there and I absolutely loved everybody there. My family, my friends, everybody I know was there. Most of them still are there. Um, so it's heartbreaking that I had to leave, but you know, there are, there are some incursions on Liberty that are so uh, insulting <laughs> and infuriating that you, you know, you either, you either get up and you fight or you leave and uh, there wasn't enough people to fight. So I left. So it takes a lot of courage uh, to, to do what you did to, you know, to leave for one, like you said, a place you've lived for so long, uh, to make that big of a move. Um, did, you know, the people around you, your sort of support system, were they supportive of your decision or did they sort of disagree with you altogether? No, I think the, I mean, because I've been a libertarian for so long, basically everyone in my life, even though, you know, they wouldn't probably classify themselves as libertarian. Like I have 
slowly <laughs> planted those seeds and and they all they all kind of have a similar rebellious streak in them so the vast majority of them agreed with me that the lockdowns were horrendous um i just think a, a lot of them don't don't have these beliefs so infused into their being <laughs> that, that that they were like i'm going to actually uproot my life and leave um so yeah they were very supportive obviously the, they were sad you know they didn't want me to go um but they were supportive broadly i'm glad to hear that like what i found over this sort of covid situation is like so many relationships have been severed yeah. people have been like alienated from their friends from their communities so i'm glad that at least for you that that didn't happen to work out that way i mean it's unfortunate there's literally a geographical divide between you and you know your friends and family uh but it's good that you guys are still like close and in touch so i'm glad to hear yeah. that yeah i mean i live as close to them as i do uh king george so <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not good um you know having this this far of a gap but it's just it was just mandatory i just i couldn't i couldn't live there and and ultimately i think that california is on a on a path to destruction and and because all of the people like me left there's really no electoral hope at all anymore in california or new york or any of these states that uh <laughs> that had the the exodus of liberty-minded folks so um i think it's over for them personally uh i'm gonna pivot a little bit here um sure so like I'm I'm a pretty big advocate for people like Edward Snowden, um, Julian Assange, who like in, in my personal opinion should not be imprisoned. I would like to see whoever becomes the next president just you know exonerates them if if that's possible. What are your thoughts on those guys? Oh, they're heroes. I mean, they're heroes of the highest order. I not only should they not be in prison, they ought to be building statues to them. Um, so <laughs> yes, I agree with you. I mean, they are they are responsible for elucidating the corruption and the the censorship and the spying apparatus that exists within uh the american you know intelligence agencies and and also the the evilness of the military industrial complex i mean both of them highlighted those issues in ways that are extraordinarily profound and unfortunately even though the american people became privy to those disclosures they didn't seem to care to a large extent um and that that is heartbreaking uh, but the bigger principle is is one of you know speech rights and a free press and whistleblower protections and those guys meet all of those criteria so um yeah they're heroes yeah and i i feel like you know i think all of us sort of in this space kind of poo poo on mainstream media and i think part of the reason why they're so bad now is because the assange case sorry assange case in particular has made it so you cannot really do journalism properly I mean, what did people up until that point been doing anyways? It's like, you know, as a journalist, you do this sort of whistleblowing where you're privy to certain information, you shed light on it. And then normally it becomes this big story that people like applaud you for. But that was a particular case where it's like somebody did it and all of a sudden they were uh, seen as this like villain, this bad guy that was ostracized. And now, yep. you know, like, like we've seen what's happened. So it's... Well, it's terrible. And then you add to that the treatment of the January Sixers, which the vast majority of them were peaceful and they're facing years in prison. I mean, that does away with, you know, the right to peacefully assemble or protest. Uh, you then have the prosecution of Donald Trump's attorneys, which were seeking legal remedies to an election that they didn't have faith in. That is extraordinarily dangerous. If you, if you have your counsel that is now being prosecuted, I mean, why, why would any attorney take up Donald Trump's defense at this point, given that they're probably going to face prison over it. This is, this is all 
These are all incursions upon the fundamental like values by which we stay free. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me talk about Julian Assange, they assume I'm some lefty anti-war peacenik hippie. And then they hear me talk about defending the J6ers and Donald Trump's attorneys and they go, oh, he's some MAGA guy. And it's like, no, <laughs> I just believe in freedom, period. Um, yeah. And when I see it, when I see it being uh, aggressed upon, because that's really what's happening, I, I rise up regardless of who it is. I think like me, you probably sometimes speak to somebody and you feel like a little bit of like a, a lunatic, a sort of conspiratorial person, oh, you know, for me, day. right. For me, it's just like, you know, let's, let's do what we can to like shed light on the truth. Let's get closer to the truth at least. And like, if, if I can get into a, not an argument, but a debate with somebody and have like a nuanced discussion, like that's great. Like, cause maybe I'm wrong about something, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear more. And that's where like your show is great because you're shedding light on so many important things. I kind of try to do the same thing more specific to Bitcoin, but I love doing talks like this because for one, uh, again, we're, we're allowing the truth to come out, but more importantly, like I get to learn from people like you. So again, thank you for being here. Absolutely, man. I, it's one of the, <clears throat> the best aspects of my show is that I've got to have on so many brilliant people. I mean, Dr. Robert Malone, for God's sakes, <laughs> like, like the, the list of guests uh, is, is unbelievable. The, the people I've been able to talk to and learn from financial wizards and economics wizards and, and, you know, business wizards and political, uh, you know, uh, analysts that are, are of the highest caliber. It's doctors of the highest caliber. I had on the Surgeon General of Florida, Dr. Ladapo, and it's like the, the list is unbelievable. So I couldn't agree more, man. This is why, um, you know, even though I do make a little bit of money from podcasting at this point, I, I have been and would do it for free forever. I just think it's the most beautiful experience of my life. The the network that I've been able to build, the conversations, the the learning I've been able to to not just do for myself, but for my audience, which now is pretty significant, is amazing. I am I am so grateful to be in the position I am. It's funny, like podcasting is something I've ignored for like far too long. It, it, I'm this weird guy who like, I'm a techie, but in some ways I'm like a Luddite. Like there's certain yeah, things yeah. I've just always shied away from and social media is one. And uh, I started to put together a documentary series for Bitcoin and, and in doing so, I did a couple of interviews through Zoom and I was like, why don't I just like start a podcast? And that's how this sort of thing, like the genesis of it. And um yeah, the, barrier, I just the barrier to entry isn't very high. <laughs> no, it isn't. And like, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know to what extent my audience is going to grow. But like, fortunately, uh, I've seen an increase month by month. And I see like people are commenting more, giving me feedback, which is great. Um, but yeah, just having these opportunities to speak to people that like I've listened to, I've, I've come to adore. Um, there's a reason why I have you on my show, because like you're a brilliant dude. And like the insights you always come with um, are things that I want to hear and you know, just, just having those learning opportunities makes this such a rewarding experience. So like, if there's anybody out there that's sort of on the fence about doing a podcast, like just dip your toe and see what happens. Exactly, man. I, I started it in, I think it was May 1st of 2020 and I've now reached over, or I've had over 3 million downloads and half of those were since January 1st of this year. I mean, that's crazy. It's absolutely incredible. So, um, and, and considering, you know, what my ideas are, how radical they are, that is that is truly uh, hope infusing for me. Um, so it has brought me from really the brink of despair in 2020 when I first started to having a lot of hope and a lot of direction and purpose and optimism about 
the trajectory of things when I, I thought all hope was lost. So uh, if you're listening and you're in that position, please, please try, <laughs> please try something, man. Cause uh, the, the network that I've found by doing this has been incredibly uplifting. Yeah. You've kind of developed this like support system just from like listeners and people that get on your show. So I, I totally get that. Now, so you just mentioned the word despair. <laughs> Um, what is it that maybe is happening around the States nowadays that maybe still sort of generates a feeling of despair in you? Well, I mean, definitely the, the fact that they appear to be rolling out mass mandates again. Um, the fact that there's, there's a lot of, uh, funding that's going, you know, kind of behind the scenes into TSA and, and re-bolstering the CDC's, uh, you know, force apparatus that they had created during the the worst years of the lockdowns uh, that concerns me a lot that they may be ramping up to try and do it again. Um, so that, that is despair inducing <laughs> for sure that they, that right. they think that they're you know going to try that, um, you know, but to pair some hope with that, I think that it's very hopeful that the vast majority of people's reaction to that news so far has been F you. <laughs> like, we were absolutely not going to do that again. Um, so that's, that's hopeful. Uh, but yeah, Can I just I mean, interject just, for a second. Sure. So, so th what you just said specifically is that uh, nationwide, or is that specific to your state? I'm sorry. The which which side of it? The hope well, or the despair? Well, no, no, no. Like the the mask mandates and all of this sort of like fear that's maybe. No, no, no. It's I mean, it, it's very hard to figure out exactly how far reaching this will be. Um, mm -hmm. But they in there was an Atlanta school that came out with it, a college that came out with mass mandates. There was a film studio in California that reintroduced mass mandates. And then there was also um, whistleblowers from the, the TSA that said that they were planning, uh, you know, f basically a, a mass mandate for flights again in mid-September, which would be nationwide. So if that happens, that means that it's probably just one of those preliminary steps that that starts to really expand and become a nationwide thing again. Um, you know, I live in Florida. I don't have much fear, particularly given that DeSantis is trying to be the president of the United States. There's no way in hell he allows uh, lockdowns to hit Florida. So I'll be fine. But it's just like that the fact that they would even try that again is horrifying to me. Um, you know, the fact that that precedent was essentially accepted by the American people and that there's a huge percentage of this country that is completely convinced in anthropogenic global warming and they would probably go along with it for climate change purposes, that is despair inducing. That scares the hell out of me. Um, the fact that you have the World Economic Forum and the 15 minute cities and, and all this nonsense uh, that they're still kind of pushing and propagating prim primarily through academia into the you know, collegiate level. That is despair inducing. The fact that the young people of this country believe that, you know, humanity is a plague upon the earth and that we're overpopulated and ultimately we have to shrink the size of our population. That is despair inducing. The fact that we have $32 trillion in debt and, uh, and absolutely no pathway to solvency and almost certainly are going to end up in a, you know, fiat death spiral on a global scale. Not to mention you have the BRICS that are, you know, creating a, a competing currency that will probably undermine the U.S. dollar and create the inflationary pressures would start to increase upon themselves because that's the way inflation works. Uh, that is despair inducing. <sighs> Sorry. That's a whole list, man. There's a lot no, more. That... I, could, I could keep going. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. No, that was, that was a really good little rant there. Um, you mentioned 15 minute cities. Can you explain that? Cause it's not something I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been an idea that's been floated around by the uh, WEF world economic forum, as well as, you know, the United nations and most of the, you know, technocracy elites, they, they believe that, 
we should be creating 15 minute cities where essentially everything you need to survive will be within 15 minutes of your home so that you never have to drive anywhere so that you can then take public transport and blah, blah, blah. It's all about, you know, reducing uh, carbon emissions essentially. And, and, you know, improving quality of life by not being free, <laughs> which is, which is their entire, you know, modus operandi and one that I hate with every fiber of my being. How much of the, I guess, ESG sort of climate uh, narrative that we've, you know, heard for the past say, five, 10, 15 years, how much of that do you think comes from Wall Street specifically? Uh, I mean, a big portion of it for sure. But I think that there's this misunderstanding that, that, American Wall Street still runs the world. It is multinational conglomerates that really run the world at this point, you know, and, and most of the fortune 500 companies are multinationals, you know, so those, yes, it's Wall Street, but it's far bigger than that. It's the, it's the, you know, billion, 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 maybe even trillion dollar operations that, uh, that expand or, you know, span the entire globe that are ultimately propagating this stuff. And, and the reality is, is that, I don't think the vast majority of them are are all in on it for like it's not like their plans necessarily it's in, it's the incentive structure it's that they want to have a good relationship with the governments of the world and the central banks of the world and the governments and the central banks of the world very much want ESG they're propagating it from the 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 top down so it's a it's a government induced phenomenon more than it is a a Wall Street one Okay. The reason I asked because, uh, was it BlackRock recently? There was, there was some big name, I think it was BlackRock that <clears throat> more or less like cast aside this whole ESG push. So I was, that's why I was wondering if it was wall street specific. I'm pretty sure that was state street. Um, I, okay. I don't think black BlackRock has, has walked it back, but they are rebranding, you know, they're, they're trying to change it to, uh, you know, SDG, sustainable development goals, things like that. That's, it's all, it's all UN stuff though. Like th this is why I, even though I'm very critical of these money managers that are, are pushing the ESG nonsense, I'm far more critical of the inception point. Like where, where did this actually arise? And the truth is that it arose from the United Nations. <laughs> That's where it came about. And then it was propagated by the World Economic Forum, which has all of the biggest businesses on earth meet with them every year in Davos, where they essentially adopted this ideology and this worldview. Um, so that's like strike the root, right? Like that's how you have to go, go uh, against these things. So the root is these, basically the globalist governance uh, apparatus and, and the United Nations being kind of the, the focal point of that. I actually had no idea that the UN was behind it in any way. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I'm gonna have to kind of dive down that rabbit hole. Yeah, 2004. Um, it was actually from 2000. Uh, they they kind of created this this plan to try and address uh, climate change, and it was essentially like their their plans for the next you know century or millennia or whatever. Um, and and climate change was their big focal point in carbon emissions specifically. And by 2004 or so, they had a really good idea of how they were going to go about it. And the their concept, the framework, was a public private partnership, aka fascism. Okay, <laughs> just want to make this real clear to people. That's what it is. Um, so they they concluded that the solution to uh, man-made climate change was fascism, and that's what we've been experiencing ever since. It didn't really take hold until the you know 2010s, 20 late even 20 teens, um, but the lockdowns were kind of like where it it hit a a tipping point where it became really really dangerous for the the every per everyday person. 
I think some of the sort of extreme sort of radical things we're seeing, you know, the people that are like gluing themselves to objects sitting in the middle of traffic, I think it's starting to like kind of wake people up to say like, you know what, I think we've kind of gone a little bit too far into this thing. Maybe we need to walk it back. Would you agree with that? Wait, I'm sorry. Who, who is, who's feeling that way? I think just the general public, like when somebody hops onto Facebook or Twitter, or wherever, and they see these, you know, these viral videos, I think they're starting to go like, that's a bit extreme, like, because yeah. they're trying to protect the world. Like, isn't this a little unusual? Like, maybe I need to kind of reframe my, my thinking about, you know, carbon emissions and anything that's going to have some sort of environmental impact. Well, I, I sure hope you're right. And I think that there's a huge percentage of the population that does feel that way and has woken up to it to a, a certain extent, probably not nearly as much as you and I, but uh, definitely not as much as me, because I am crazy red-pilled on this stuff at this point. <laughs> you know, like, like, I'm off the deep end red-pilled. Um, but I think that the vast majority of people, if they're actually, if they've held on to any capacity for rational thought, like those people at this point are going like, this doesn't make sense, man. Like this seems like a really bad idea. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to give all of our money to the government and they're going to change the weather on earth. Like, is that, is that really, is that really what we're going to do here? Like, is that actually the plan? Do you think that's going to, going to succeed? Have you seen any evidence that the federal government or some, you know, conglomeration of all of the federal governments all over the planet, have they ever accomplished anything good aside from, wars that have killed millions of people like so you think they're going to save billions of people but even though they believe overtly explicitly that the population is too high and that we have to reduce it and they're going to save us come on man you gotta you gotta put these dots together it's not they're not even disparate like they're right next to each other just connect a couple with me here um so yeah i think i think you're right i think a, a huge percentage of people are are seeing it um it's unfortunate but i think a lot of the people that are, are college educated are, are the ones that are, are ha struggling the most to see it because they have been so indoctrinated to be skeptical of quote unquote conspiracy theories, even though these are conspiracies, not theories. They are, they are right out in the open for us all to look at, uh, but they, they have a real knee jerk averse reaction to anything that Alex Jones might be talking about, even though half of the things he says are true. It's funny you say that, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I can say I've been university educated, it's provided so me with an, you know, I, I'm a teacher, and I wouldn't be a teacher without a university education. And it's funny, like you go through this, the, through the program, you graduate, and you think like, yeah, I'm a critical thinker. But now in hindsight, I go like, I did very little critical thinking, I think I learned how to do it. But right. I never really thought of the world in this sort of critical way, asking the right questions. And it isn't until you really kind of like, focus on one particular subject with kind of like a microscope in your hand and really start to break things down and say like, you know what, like I have this belief, does it even make sense? Right. And um, yeah, it's funny. That, like I That, is, like that is critical thought. That is critical. Where you actually look at your prior thoughts and you go, are they right? That is critical thought. It is not, if you're, if you're just basically rote memorizing, if you're just like taking what your teacher is telling you and, and being, and you become really good at repeating it back to them so that you can get good grades. That's not critical thought. I've, I was also a very good student. Um, but like where, where I found myself, uh, you know, kind of blossoming was when I challenged my professors and I, and I realized very quickly that I was the only person in my classes that did that. You know, <laughs> like, right. I was like, well, this is crazy. Like no one, no one has any questions. He's just making all of these assertions and no one is pushing back at all ever. 
Um, and it, fortunately, I was in business school. So many of my professors came from the business world and they appreciated the challenge. They appreciated the pushback. And oftentimes we would have very spirited debates. Um, but the vast majority of kids, they're just not, they're not built like that. And I think that public school has largely beat it out of them. It's tragic. Yeah, I think whether it's conscious or subconscious, we're sort of taught like you're not really supposed to challenge, you know, elders, especially like educators. They're the ones that disseminate information. They they know it all. But like, yeah, I tell my don't. students, <laughs> no, and I tell my students, I'm like, first of all, I don't have all the answers. And like, honestly, like if there's something you think I may be wrong about, or you're just unsure about, like, let's, let's revisit that. Let's tackle that. Because like, I know that the, I don't know everything. Like it's that simple. I, I I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. And um, if I can learn by revisiting something, by taking a question from a kid, like I will absolutely do that. And I'll do that happily. Yeah. So, well, not, not, not only do I not know everything, I know hardly anything. And and the yeah. more I learn, I mean, this is like an Einstein quote, but the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know, you know? And um, so I never take it personally when I'm challenged on, I mean, unless it's comes from a place of like malice, then I might take it personally, but if it's genuine, uh, you know, in, inquisitiveness, then I, I'm like, let's do this. You know, I'm, I want to, not only do I want to make sure that I'm right, but I want to, I want to actually sharpen my, my belief in things and, and my understanding of things more importantly. Um, so yeah, I, I could not disagree more with, with those that feel like we should not be challenging, uh, people in positions of authority. I mean, maybe this is my anarcho-capitalist side that's coming out and, and that's just like <laughs> who I, who I am or, or even politically who I am. But, um, I think it's kind of who I've always been is that I, I have always challenged authority. And I think that, um, I never want to be viewed as a position or as a person in so much authority that I can't be challenged either. I think I, I have improved. I have become who I am because I have been challenged repeatedly and, and I, I want to continue to be because I want to continue to improve. We just don't improve. If, if you think that you know everything and that you're some sort of omnipotent being, Anthony Fauci, hello, uh, you get a lot <laughs> wrong and you hurt a lot of people with that worldview. Um, so I just, I don't want to go down that path. Yeah, my mind is kind of blown by this conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm thinking back to the question I asked you about, like, what is it that gives you despair? I mean, there, there really are so many things that we can think about. You know, we got the uh, the drug crisis that's unfortunately plaguing many cities across the U.S. We're facing the same thing in Canada. And as a result, uh, people are left homeless on the streets. Um, so there's a lot that we can be critical of. So I'm wondering, like, do you think there's a future where a president, it could be somebody in the you know upcoming election, could be somebody way down the road who might actually bring about significant change. Well, sure, it's possible. Um, odds odds aren't in its favor. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the 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 system is not set up to be reformed. It is set up to protect moneyed interests primarily, and and people in positions of power and authority. So. You know, it's going to require a really revolutionary spirit in in whoever tries to endeavor upon that path, and they have to be they have to be willing to sacrifice everything, including not just their lives but their families' lives. I mean that that's how corrupt this system is, and I believe that one hundred percent. Like I think that they've been willing to assassinate and character assassinate and threaten and blackmail and bribe politicians my entire life and far, far longer than that. So it's going to, it's going to require someone with my belief system that, that believes in the, the value of human liberty and is willing to sacrifice everything for it to try and, you know, breathe life back into it. 
And do I have any faith that there's anybody in our political, you know, cabinet that's uh, capable of that or even comes close to sharing those beliefs? I don't know. I don't know. I, I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do, do you feel like most people <clears throat> that are running that they go in with like good intentions and then just sort of along the way when they become entrenched in the system, they just get, get kind of co-opted and they almost feel like they have no other choice but to sort of toe the line? Well, I think the vast majority of, of people that enter politics uh, do so out of self-aggrandizement. You know, they, they want to, they're very egotistical, narcissistic people uh, for, the, for the most part. Those that run for federal politics, local politics and state politics are different because there's not as much, you know, fame and fortune to come along with it. Uh, but federal politics is filled with some of the worst people on the planet. So, uh, you know, those people, I, I think many of them enter it as a corrupted individual. Uh, those those handful that do enter it for the, the right reasons, yes, they also get corrupted pretty easily and pretty quickly. I mean, there's a handful of people that I can point to and say, has not been corrupted, probably never will. Ron Paul, Thomas Massey, end of list. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's it. So um, it's very rare, man. Uh, I mean, that's why you need you need people that are are true blue believers that that are will never sell out that that actually mean what they say and they mean it more than they mean anything else that's rare dude that's super rare so i you know to your broader question as to whether or not i think there's someone that can do that um i just don't know i mean vivek ramaswamy has been saying all of the right things for the most part uh he he strikes me he's he's so polished it's very hard to know if he's sincere all of the time because he's just so damn good at speaking and those people are always like, oh, I don't know, man, <laughs> you know, like, you're such a, you're such a good salesman. I just can't be sure. Um, so in, in terms of rhetoric, he's as close to anybody that has a shot at the presidency, um, you know, since Ron Paul for sure, uh, to, to sound or, or share any of my beliefs allegedly. So as of now, I'm kind of rooting for him. Um, you know, but more than that, I just want someone in there that's like, even if they don't share all of my beliefs, but they, they just, they seem to be a radical, um, RFK Jr. has, has a streak of that in him, in him, in terms of the, the truths he's been willing to discuss, which are completely unsayable truths. Like you're not allowed to talk about these things. Um, I like him a lot. I'm really grateful that he's running for the Democrat, um, you know, platform and I'm rooting for him. And then Donald Trump even though he was an utter disaster in 2020, I'm kind of rooting for him because I feel like if he were to, to win, it would also be a, a complete, um, you know, just slap in the face of, of everybody in a position of power, the media, uh, the political class, the world economic forum, everybody that basically runs things, uh, they would, it would be a total refutation of their entire worldview. So even though he wouldn't bring about my worldview, I like that because I hate them. So as you can tell, I have a very, once again, very nuanced view on all of these people. And I'm not really, uh, you know, I don't think I'll vote for any of them, but I'm kind of rooting for those three guys. Do you think either Vivek or RFK have a legitimate shot at actually winning? Well, the Democrat Party has super delegates. And I think it, unless RFK Jr. is willing to sell out and, and you know, swear his soul in allegiance to the powers that be, they'll, they'll burn him. You know, they'll, they'll keep him from getting the nomination, even though I think that he he has the best chance of actually from the Democrat side, he has the best chance of actually 
helping this country, even though I don't agree with his economic policy and a lot of other things. I think he's the best option on that side of the, the aisle. Um, and then Vivek, I think, has a real shot if Donald Trump were to uh, essentially take a plea deal from all of these charges that he's facing and to stand down and to endorse him. I think that that would get Vivek over the top, almost certainly. Um, aside from that, if he doesn't, you know, then I think Trump's Trump's going to sail to the nomination on the GOP side. I don't see how he doesn't. The, the MAGA base is so, so in love with him. I just don't see any way he doesn't get the nomination. Yeah, I feel that way too. The thing with Vivek is, um, you know, he speaks his mind. And I think, I mean, there's a reason why so many people love him because he does do that. Um, where I think it's a problem is especially probably among Democrats who watch a lot of CNN, they see and, and more importantly hear him and they go, whoa, this is so radically different from anything that I've been used to. I, right. you know, And you know, people are so weary of change that I think it's almost too much. Just as I think Bernie Sanders for, for too many people was sort of like too much, too far on one side. So that's yeah. just where I see maybe he's going to have an issue. But uh, I mean, I, I very much agree with a lot of what you just said. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, that that's probably the other reason I like these guys is because they're saying things that you just don't get heard said ever. <laughs> you know, like yeah. um, RFK in particular, I mean, his his capacity to break down the war in Ukraine as someone who's now, you know, kind of become a bit of a professional debater about that topic. Uh, look, he he does as good a job as anyone in politics is capable of doing in, in laying out the case of of NATO expansion, the fall of the USSR, you know, the 91 run up, the provocations, the Maidan coup, everything. Like he does an incredible job of laying it out. So that is, that is such a absolute nail sent flying a billion miles per hour at the military industrial complex. Like, how could I not love that? You know, like that's, right. a, that's yep. an incredibly profound capability that he, that he has. The fact that he's willing to talk about how the CIA, CIA or the FBI is almost certainly responsible for the death of his father and his uncle. Holy shit. <laughs> you know, like that, that's the, these are amazing, amazing things that are being said. The fact that Vivek Ramaswamy, a Brown man is willing to get up there and say how diversity, equity, and inclusion is dividing us all. And how it's it's ultimately undermining capitalism and undermining the American worldview and undermine undermining the the belief that we are equal and we should set aside our you know immutable characteristics and focus on merit once again, which is ultimately the foundational principle of a free market of capitalism. It's the only way it works. So, I mean, th those two guys are are talking about stuff that are just incredibly profound. And then, and then, and on top of that, that RFK Jr. wrote a fucking book where he just eviscerates Anthony Fauci's entire career and describes the entire origin story of COVID in just excruciating detail. Like <laughs> these are, these are really dangerous political figures that have never in my life been, you know, polling at double digits. It's, it's, it's incredible to witness. Yeah, you know what? You actually just reminded me. I have to go out and read that book because that would be, I'm sure, an interesting one to read. Oh, bro! If you haven't read it, it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> and it is cited. I mean, you're you're in academia. It is cited yeah. in a way that is absolutely damning. Like, I think I think every word of it, up until you know 99%, is a hundred percent true. And when you read that thing, you will be absolutely floored at the corruption that exists within the uh, the medical establishment. It's horrifying.
I think that's partly what I'm afraid of because some of the things that he said regarding vaccines have made me think very differently about them. And like, I have a baby boy at home. He's only three months old now. And like, I'm like, okay, what do we do with them? Cause like moving forward, I, I don't know. I'm like, I put my you know trust and faith in like medical ex quote unquote experts, or do I go with like my gut instinct and like, you know, avoid certain vaccinations. So like, you know, whether or not he gets elected, you know, we'll see. I'm just glad that he's bringing things like this to, you know, to the light because people are going to look at it through a microscope and, you know, if we can get, I don't like regulation as a whole, but I mean, when it comes to like medical products, like I, I hope people will do their due diligence and say, you know what, this is something that is good for society. This isn't, uh, this is something that is purely here to make money for, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And then we have these specific things that may be able to actually target, you know, diseases and other things. So, well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you, but my, like what, what I'm so hopeful about is that people are starting to really reconsider. And I hope that they're reconsidering, not just the regulatory framework, because the FDA is, is just a disaster. And the FDA largely is responsible for, you know, the protocols by which drugs worldwide are approved. I mean, they have a huge amount of weight and gravity when it comes to that. The, the real issue is not even that. The real issue is liability that these companies don't have liability. That's insane. I mean, yeah. So like they have no incentive to do the right thing. So obviously they're going to become corrupted and start to sell products that are of lesser and lesser quality and ultimately dangerous to people. And they're going to lie about it because they don't have any incentive not to. So look, that, that I I agree with you. I, I have reconsidered my outlook on vaccines, but you know, I'm still not, uh, I'm not like some hard anti-vaxxer. I'm really not. I think that yeah, there's, a, there's a really good case to be made that there's a lot of vaccines that are incredibly beneficial to humanity as a whole, but they should never be forced on people. They should never be mandated. If it's a great enough product that it can actually, you know, pre- prevent pandemics or end pandemics or save millions, if not billions of lives, you don't need to lie to people and coerce them and give liability shields to the producers to get them to you know, take them or to buy them. It's all nonsense. The system at its root is corrupted. And I, I hope, I hope to God that after the 2020 to 2022 period, people are really starting to you know, wake up to what has to change if we're going to get away from that absolute trap. Well, before we started recording, I told you how I lived in Florida for a bit. So you know, up until it was summer of grade nine, I lived in Canada and I'd been fully vaccinated. And then when we moved there, just before I started school, my, you know, my mother was enrolling me and they said, sorry, your son can't start school because he's missing like X number of vaccinations. And she's like, that's weird. And so we go into this clinic and I, I don't know how many shots I had, but it was like just a cocktail. And I had to go back like week after week. My mom's going like, how is it that in Canada you were fully vaccinated, but we come to this country and all of a sudden you're missing like X, Y, Z. And like, and she, she's a former doctor. And so she was like, this is really weird. And at the time I, I kind of thought it was weird, but now like with everything that has sort of, you know, come to light through RFK, I, I think about that moment in time and I'm like, wow, it really does just come down to all the incentives. Everything's so incentive driven. Well, I mean, just think about uh, your your experience. Like, are there are there uh, pandemics that are are ravaging the Canadian people because those exactly. those handful of, you know, it's just it's on its face. Like, I don't even have to prove this. It's just on its face obvious that they are giving kids these things that they don't need. And I don't know if you're going to put this on YouTube, so I'll just leave it at that. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, like there's, there's a lot of money being made off of this stuff and it's being done in the name of health and it ain't, it's not the case. It's not true. So I think, I think people need to reflect on that and start to reevaluate, uh, particularly when it comes to your kids, man, if you're an adult and you, the same, same way I feel about with the, the, you know, uh, the transsexual stuff, it's like, if you're an adult, do whatever you want. I literally yeah. don't care. But when it comes to kids, we have to really, really reevaluate our priors and think these things through. I agree 100%. Like, and I've said this to a lot of like friends of mine, you know, I, I didn't really understand myself or the world until I was late 20s, maybe early 30s. So to expect yep. a five-year-old or an eight-year-old to understand their body and this idea of gender, which by the way, is a social construct, is just ludicrous. And then to punish parents for not wanting to, you know, ad address their quote unquote concerns of like, who it is that, that I am or how I identify. It just, it's so bogus. And I feel like if there was an alien species looking down on us, they would just be shaking our heads going, what the hell, man? Well, yeah. And, and what, what it creates is really catastrophic. I mean, it, you're going to have tens of thousands, if not millions of kids that are really screwed up by this stuff. Um, you know, from the vaccines or the, <laughs> or from the uh, medicines that they're giving them to, to uh, address hormonal stuff. It's or surgeries for some of them. Unfortunately, uh, it's very, very dangerous. Not to mention the psychological damage of just kind of having your being challenged in the most, you know, foundational, fundamental years of your life. Uh, it's so, 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 so dangerous, man. And. And then you add on top of that, that many of these kids were locked down and they were forced to mask for a couple of years. And they're having this kind of psychological operation ran against them simultaneously. That makes them question whether or not they're a boy or girl, man. It's, it's crazy. This is why I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of convinced at this point that it's, it's an op, you know, like it, it just, some of it's organic and some of it is just a product of social media and, and it being popularized. And then some of it, uh, if you if you've studied at all the nature of our CIA or any of the you know five eyes the the spy agencies around the world, uh, I think we would be foolish not to consider if if perhaps they are doing this for for a purpose and a nefarious one at that. I hope I'm wrong about that, but even if it's all organic, it's still terrible, and we ought to be talking about it. When you say it might be an op, you mean to say that uh, it's it's a way to essentially get the public to pay attention to this rather than all of the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. No, I, what I mean by that specifically is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, you know, secondary effects that comes from these things that could be beneficial to the people in power. So for instance, like if this is an op, a lot of people think that it comes through TikTok and that it's been popularized through TikTok and that the CCP is ultimately doing it to the American youth because the vast majority of people on TikTok are young Americans. Um, I don't know if that's true, but just to just assume it is for a second. Well, what would be a better way if you're if you're a rising superpower and you're facing the the current global hegemon? What would be a better way to defeat them than to you know destroy the hearts and minds of their young people? You know, like, like that's a, if you're if you're a, a, a war planner, that's exactly what you would do. You know, I'm not. I am personally of the opinion that the C CCP is not doing that. I don't think that they are. Um, but this just an obvious case of like, that's, these are the reasons that you would do these things. If you're trying to rule over your people with an iron fist, well, wouldn't you want to make them feel as if, uh, you know, masculine traits are ultimately toxic and dangerous because masculine right. traits are ultimately the, the thing by which tyranny is thrown off. 
Like, yes, that's why you would do that. So there's a, there's a lot of reasons that they could be doing it. And I don't have any evidence to prove any of this, but I'm just, I'm just analyzing based off of, you know, rational assessment as to reasons that they might be. Yeah. It just sort of seems like, like a common sense approach, if you will. Yeah. I'm a common, I'm a common sense conspiracy <laughs> theorist. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't go down the interdimensional, uh, you know, child molesting space demons like Alex Jones does. I'm, I'm a, I take a rational approach to this stuff. Well, it's like you use your common sense to make, let's say some sort of conclusion or, or no, not even conclusion, more, more of an assertion, but then you use your rational thinking. You, you start to use that critical thinking brain of yours to look at various things from different perspectives. And then you kind of make that conclusion and say, you know, was my common sense right in the first place or did I sort of stray somewhere along the way? Exactly. And then if you're, if you're really good, you start to try and search for the evidence to see if your, if your assessment might be merited or not, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and also you make it very clear to your audience that you're not concluding these things, that you're not speaking them as if they're facts, as if you know them. Cause I never, I never do that. If I'm, if I'm hypothesizing, I want people to know that. Um, but if you're, if you're at all privy to the nature of the CIA or the FBI for that matter, and the operations that we now know that they've been running on us since their inception, <laughs> you'd be stupid not to consider what operations they're running against us now. And that's the truth. That is a fact. <laughs> you would be dumb to not consider if some of the craziness that we're seeing isn't intentional and doesn't have a nefarious purpose. Um, so that's what I do. And, you know, some people will say, oh, you're fear mongering. No, no, no. I'm trying to figure this stuff out, man. I'm trying to figure out yeah. what, what we're actually facing, because if we don't know what we're facing, well, then we definitely aren't going to win. So, um, yeah, maybe I jump to conclusions sometimes and I'll certainly get some things wrong, but I'm, I'm just, just thinking critically and I can't help myself. So I'm going to keep doing it. I think it's fine if, if it's just like a, a listener who says you're fear mongering. I think it's worse if it's somebody from you know, position of power that says it because yeah. then it's, it comes back to these incentives, right? It's like, okay, so why are you saying that? Why is it that you're trying to get me canceled? Right. right. You're just trying to sort of reel me in, bring us back to the sort of original narrative that you would like me to tell yeah. rather than like what I sort of believe to be true. But I, yeah, I'm well, with you. Like I, unless I have actual evidence, I try not to make any sort of real conclusion. Certainly one that I'm going to spew out publicly because yeah. like, at the end of the day, let's say when it comes to the Ukraine war, I don't even have that much of a viewpoint because at the end of the day, like I'm not there. I don't have eyes to see what's happening. So like to, to have a true opinion on it, like, yes, okay. I believe that Putin was wrong for doing what he did. Like nobody should invade another country, full stop. But as far as all of the little like nuances, like, I, man, I don't know if that's, simple. I don't know. Yeah. No, well, I mean, uh, not to mention the fog of war and the, and the propaganda that's coming from both sides, including you know, the entire Western media, it's like, uh, who, you'd have to be crazy to think you actually know the truth, 100% the truth of what's happening over there. Yep. It's impossible. But I can tell you for a fact, I know you're being lied to. <laughs> like, yeah. I know that for a fact, you're being lied to. Um, and I, the reason I know that is because I've, I, I was fortunate enough to read a pre-release of Scott Horton's book called Provoked, which uses you know, State Department leaks and all sorts of source material, like real source material and quotes from American politicians and intelligence agency, uh, you know, figureheads, which went on the record in their, in their, uh, uh, what's it called? Like their autobiographies and stuff. Like you have, you have lots and lots and lots of evidence that people in the American intelligence agencies 
understood that expanding NATO thousands of miles east from Germany after the fall of the USSR was ultimately going to lead to this. They knew it. They did it anyways. That's a fact. That is not that is not in dispute. So when you hear the media say there was no provocation and that Putin just did this out of the blue, they are lying, 100% lying. So from my vantage point, that's the only point that I'm really willing to stand on. I'm not willing to say, right. oh, you know, Ukraine is going to lose and Russia's winning. And this is, I know exactly how many people are dying. Like, yes, I think, I think that Russia is winning this war. And I think that we ought to end it as soon as possible. And I think that peace negotiations have been undermined uh, every step of the way by the American uh, military industrial complex. And I think that's tragic, uh, but I don't know on the day-to-day what the truth is. I, I listen to as many different talking heads about it as I can to try and figure it out, but it's it's impossible in, in real time. We only can really know it in hindsight, in my opinion. Uh, you mentioned Scott Horton. I, I've heard him on a different podcast. The guy's brilliant. So if, if anybody hasn't checked out like any of his work, like I, I certainly encourage you to do so. I'd love to have him on the show, actually. Yeah, um, he's, he's awesome. And, and just for your audience's sake, yep. I did a two-parter with him uh, a couple months ago on Liberty Lockdown, I would highly encourage people to check it out. We we run through this stuff. It was right after I had finished reading his book. Um, it's crazy. I mean, it's it is absolutely a crazy interview. It's like it's three hours long. It's like an hour and a half, uh, both segments. But it is it is nuts. How are we doing for time? I still got some. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I know like as somebody who sort of praises Vivek and RFK, like you've got to be a strong proponent of free speech. So oh, yeah. like, Huge. Why, why would you say, like if you had to give a, let's say one reason, why is it important to have free speech in a society? Well, I think it kind of goes back to our, our earlier discussion about uh, challenging authority. You know, like if you're in a position where you can't uh, voice opposition to people that are speaking as authorities, well, then the, the playing field is completely out of whack. It, it ultimately, if you don't have free speech, you believe in a technocratic elite that should rule over you with an iron fist and that they have to be benevolent or you're just praying that they are and they aren't because they're human beings. Um, I think that it's, it's vital for a functioning society, much less a free one. Like you have to have the capacity to speak. You have to have the capacity to, to challenge narratives, to, to seek truth, most importantly. I mean, the, this, that's, that's been probably the most disturbing aspect of this censorship uh, you know, rollout over the past three years has been that this, this belief that you know, the WHO or the CDC or Anthony Fauci or any of these people are you know, speaking on high as these authorities that shall not be challenged, that you will lose your livelihood, your capacity to reach your audience if you even challenge them, if you even question it at all. I mean, that is, that is so dangerous. That is so counter to the pursuit of truth, which if you believe in medical science, you should, you should hold that as the highest priority. Truth, seeking truth. So anybody that says otherwise is not a practitioner of medicine. They are a propagandist and a liar and a tyrant and a danger to you and your family and everyone on earth. And that's why I take it so personally. Sorry, that was a tangent, but I think you can understand why I value free, uh, free speech. Absolutely. I'm curious, as a teacher, you know, there, there have been times, probably plenty of times actually, where I've had to say to a child, like, I'm sorry, you cannot say that. Like, you may feel that way, but you cannot say that. So like, having total free speech as a liberty, do you think that that applies to everyone, like in every scenario? Or 
are there sort of limitations on that? And specifically, let's say use that specific example of a student in a school. Yeah, I mean, I, well, first off, if it's a public school, that's a different story. But I, I believe in property rights. So I believe that, you know, like you always have, in my opinion, you always have the freedom to say what you want, but you don't have the freedom to say it anywhere. And you certainly don't have the freedom to come into my home and start talking nonsense. Like <laughs> I'm going to remove you and violently if necessary. So um, there, there are limits to it in that regard, because I don't have to listen to you, but I, I don't think that I, I simultaneously, I don't think I have any right to silence you, you know, in social media or elsewhere. Like, I think you should be able to speak basically whatever you want, as long as it doesn't get into the, uh, you know, territory of endangering others. And specifically by that, I mean, doxing, you know, like if you're giving out someone's address and place of employment and you're like trying to ruin their lives, that becomes, in my opinion, an, an, an act of aggression upon that person, even though it's just words that is, that is ultimately uh, a very dangerous path to go down. So I think aside from that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a, an absolutist. Like I think that there's, there's certain speech that verges into the territory of endangering others. Um, but it's very, very rare. And I think that those, those guidelines need to be very, very strict in terms of, you know, where it's limited and where it's not. And I would, if I, if I had to choose, if it was like full censorship or just wild West, I would go wild West a hundred times out of a hundred. Okay. So that, that kind of leads into my next question. Like if somebody's saying, well, you know, total free speech, absolute free speech, it's going to lead to things like discrimination, extremism, like how, like what's your rebuttal to that? I say, well, then you better get better at talking, you know, <laughs> beat, beat, beat them at their own ideas. Like it, I've, I've never feared the, the rise of extremism because I think that the, the thing that creates extremism more than anything else is the suppression of dialogue. I mean, that's, that's what radicalizes people. You, you've now taken all of these people that had these like racist inklings and you put them all on gab and now they're all just surrounded by each other, all being racist together with no pushback whatsoever. That's not good. That's not healthy. That, di that didn't remove those people from your, your country, from your world, from your town, from your school. They're all around you. What are you doing? So yeah, I, I want, I like, I want communists to be on Twitter and I want to fucking argue with these people. I want to go after them. I want to talk. Let's, let's do this. Let's fucking yeah. see who's actually got the capacity to discuss this stuff. And let's see whose ideas hold the whole, hold the most merit. Um, so yeah, it like, sure. Could it? Yes. But I'll tell you this much, the, the consequences of trying to prevent uh, conversations that are allegedly radicalizing people or making, ra making them racist it's going to make way more racist and way more radical people. So if you're, if that's your primary concern, you're going, you're going about it the wrong way. I think it's a really great way to put it because that's kind of what ultimately leads to situations like, you know, books like 1984, Fahrenheit 451. It's that censorship that not letting people think what they think, uh, say what they want to say. It, it radicalizes people and yeah, it's not a society I want to be living in. No. Um, and let, and let I mean, me... that's kind of like people point to, you know, China and say, look at what they're doing there. And I feel like in many ways, the same things happen here. Over there, they do it openly. Here, it's just under the guise of, oh, you know, we're, you can do what you want here. Yeah, hey. exactly. It's, it's, it's all deception at this point. Um, and let me, let me also add, you know, if you're not able to speak freely, you're not thinking freely. And if you're not thinking freely, you're not being as creative as you can be. So you are, you are undermining humanity's capacity to innovate and problem solve. 
Like this is a much bigger issue than just like, I want to yell at the government or I want to say racist things or any of this nonsense. This is about like, do you believe in human flourishing at all? Do you want to actually problem solve and innovate and create these technologies that can actually actually benefit billions of people and create, you know, un untold wealth and untold innovation that improves our quality of living? Like they, these are all things that only come from free civilizations. They do not come from tyrannical ones. Look at look at what Russia has produced economically through the USSR periods or China for that matter. The only reason China succeeds to a large extent is because they rip off the ideas that come from the freer parts of the world and then they approve upon them and they incrementally you know tweak them here and there but they can't compete with us otherwise so this this entire argument about you know totalitarian or technocratic approaches to uh economic models or governance systems are totally counter to human flourishing like this is a very 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 big deal and it ultimately it will create starvation and poverty and human suffering on a scale that we have never seen um, so we've already learned this lesson. We already learned it through the Kulaks and the USSR and all this stuff. Like we know this stuff. So I just can't believe we're having this debate again. It's, it hasn't even, I mean, there's still people alive that live through this. Um, but we are, we're having it again. Yeah. What do they say? History doesn't, uh, repeat, but certainly rhymes and it seeing sure a lot of does. That going on. Um, sure does. You know, and I'm a and I'm a rapper, so, <laughs> so so I'm able to round these histories to, together and try and try and warn people once again. That's amazing. Uh, with this being a Bitcoin show, like, what's your take on the financial system? Like, what is it that's uh, what, what's wrong with it? I mean, there's probably a lot that we can cover here. Yeah, man. Oh God, where do I? Begin? I know you've had a chance to talk to Greg Foss. You, you even mentioned the uh, global debt spiral. So. And yeah. I think you even mentioned the 30, was it $32 trillion in U.S. debt at this point? Some people say 33. I don't know what the exact figure is, but, uh, you know, that's just the part that we talk about. There's also the unfunded liabilities, which are, you know, approaching $100 trillion as far as I know. So, I mean, this is just obvious and, and clear insolvency. Um, and and ultimately, the, the only reason they're not insolvent is because they have the printing press. So you're facing basically an inflationary, uh, you know, blowout, which crushes people and will almost certainly create a revolution in this country or you're facing a deflationary wipeout where they have to elevate and keep interest rates at such a high level that it, it you know decreases uh, consumer demand and it puts us into a very very steep depression for years uh, which will probably create revolution and uh, riots and all sorts of craziness too so not any really good options here right so um you know my my opinion well i Obviously, my opinion is that to try and extricate yourself from the financial system as best you can to migrate a portion of your wealth into Bitcoin or or other hard assets um, that will be able to weather the inflationary storm is important. Uh, on the inverse of that, if the Federal Reserve opts to maintain these elevated interest rates and increase them from here further and drive us into a depression, that will be extraordinarily deflationary, in which case you do want to have some dry powder. You do want to have some cash on hand so that you can uh, acquire assets once they they correct um, a lot of, a lot of Bitcoiners don't think that's a possibility. I think they're wrong. I think it's definitely a possibility. So that'll be something that I'll get yelled out about, but you're wrong. It's, there is no assurance that we are entering a hyperinflationary period right now. And, uh, it's just nonsense to say, otherwise you may very well be right, but that doesn't mean that it's a certain, there's any certainty there. So, um, I think that though, that's kind of where we sit right now. And then, um, you know, the broader economy is just crap because the lockdowns largely crushed 
uh, the mom and pop businesses, not just in America, but world over, you know, the world over. Um, and it's, it's driven everybody into these corporate roles that are ultimately at the mercy of, you know, DEI initiatives and ESG protocols and, uh, are very counter to innovation once again, because there's no one speaking their mind in these businesses because they're all scared to death that they're going to be called sexist or racist and they're going to get fired. So like innovation is dying broadly in these industries, which is why we're no longer, you know, in my opinion, we're no longer um, the clear innovator of the world. So there's a lot, there's a hell of a lot wrong. Um, But obviously as an Austrian economics guy and a libertarian and a Bitcoiner, it, it, the inception point strike the root, the Federal Reserve. And one thing I don't think it's talked enough about, I'm sure you're familiar with, are zombie companies. You know, you look at like what the, let's say, S&P has done. And I think out of the top 500 companies, there's really only six or seven that are propping up the whole thing. So that means if somebody invests in the S&P, essentially all you're doing is helping to prop up companies that shouldn't even exist, which just further exacerbates the problem across the whole economy. And I think I put it out on Twitter, like what happens if all of a sudden the majority of people say, you know what, these index funds that I keep putting my money into, I'm just going to stop doing that. I'm going to put it into Microsoft or I'm going to put it into you know so-and-so. What happens? Because as far as I'm concerned, we're just going to have a global meltdown of the markets. Yeah, well, uh, we certainly could. And and I mean, because they have hiked the the federal funds rate at a, at a breakneck pace, uh, Odds, in my opinion, odds are actually in that direction at this point. Um, it, they can always reverse course and they can turn the printing press on full speed and they can completely flip this equation and, and make me look like an idiot. But um, as of now, that trajectory is real. I mean, what they're doing is creating incredible financial financial strain across the, the banking industry because so many of them stupidly put a huge amount of their cash reserves into um long and short dated treasuries and and debt instruments more broadly. Um, and because the Fed, the Fed then took the Fed funds rate from a quarter point north of five, that that ultimately means all of those, uh, you know, debt instruments that they acquired over the past couple of years are all upside down. They're all, you know, bleeding all over the floor. They're all toxic assets, really. Uh, but then they also, then the Treasury and the Fed creates this uh, lending vehicle that, that that they're able to um, offload these debt instruments and and take the the face value, even though they're upside down, to make them appear solvent. I mean, this, these are all band-aids on bullet wounds. Like the, none of this is real. So if you want to continue to play in this economic system, feel free, but just know what you're doing. Like this, it's all illusory. It's all a lie. It's not real at all. So you know, you're just you're just hoping that the game keeps going a while longer, <laughs> but it will not go on in perpetuity. <laughs> As sure as my name is Clint, it will end. <laughs> like there's just no, there's no way in hell that this lasts the rest of our lives. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that people hedge as best they can to to weather whatever may come. So, is that what got you into Bitcoin? Was uh, essentially you just see it as a hedge uh, hedge against what we currently have? Well, not just that. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But also, I wanted to not just be a participant, but a supporter of what I think is one of the most beautiful, beautiful innovations in the history of mankind. Like this attempt to create a decentralized uh, currency that is outside of the purview of the government with limited supply that meets all of the criteria of what money is. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, innovative technology. So, I mean, yeah, for many reasons, I, I wanted to, to be a participant in it and, and I'm, I'm obviously rooting for it very, very hard. You know, like I would, 
I would love to see, and not, not for my own personal well-being. Well, I guess, yes, my personal well-being, but not for my personal wealth, but because I want freedom. You know, I want, I want people to actually uh, be able to retain their purchasing power. Like that's such a powerful thing. And, and if it's deflationary, which means it goes up in value, like even more powerful, it, it, it totally flips on its head the incentive structure of our worldview, which has been a, a very short term one to a longer term one. You know, the, a delayed gratification worldview, one that, that actually values people that are investors and savers. Like these are all things that are, you know, if you have proper incentive structures, like that's a much healthier civilization. It, it Not only does it, it change your, your way of spending money, it changes your way of living. It, it teaches the same lesson that will help you in, in your marriage, in your business, in everything. It, it, it makes it so that you actually think long term. Like so much of our worldview now is this TikTok 10 second blast thing. And it's like Bitcoin has the capacity to change not just money, but our worldview, how we live. Like it's, it's very, very powerful. You're in it for the right reasons, man. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I got into it like most people. It's like you, you go in for the, uh, for the gains, you stay for the movement. And so like the more you learn about it, uh, as Clint just said, like you stay for just a slew of other reasons. And I mean, it, it truly has the potential to transform society in, in all these different ways. And I mean, sometimes I think there's a little bit of hyperbole there and we make it sound like it's going to solve every problem. It isn't. Right. Uh, but at, at the same token, like things that we, uh, we now sort of take for granted are, are things that Bitcoin can actually help with. Maybe not fix altogether, but at least improve upon. Uh, exactly. Clint, this has been amazing. You know, I, I thought this is the kind of chat we'd have. So thank you again for being here. Um, if people want to check out your show or, you know, learn a little bit more about you, like where can they look? Yeah. Uh, Twitter or X.com. Uh, <laughs> it is at Liberty Lockpot. I'm at 99,000 followers. So I would really appreciate it if your audience would try and help me get, get me over the hump, get me to six figures. I've been grinding my bones for or my fingers to the bone for three years, trying to tweet my way to stardom here. So if you guys could help me out, I'd appreciate that. And then, uh, you know, Liberty Lockdown, you can search for it on YouTube, Rumble, all over the place. Um, or if you're a podcast, just listener, like I am, uh, then obviously Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, any of the uh, podcast index.org. If you're, uh, you know, want to try and decentralize even further and get away from the over, you know, the technological overlords like, uh, uh, Google and Apple, you can do it there too. So yeah, Liberty lockdown. Thank you for having me. Lane. Oh man. It's a pleasure. I'll have you back on another day and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just bash on the government a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds good, man. Thanks again. All right, man. Take care. Thank you all for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. You can find me, Milan, on Twitter. My handle is at MilanNesic84. It's at M-I-L-A-N-N-E-S-I-C-8-4. If you want to write me, maybe you have a question, an idea for a show, or even a guest, my email address is Milan at BTCVSTheBanks.com. Lastly, if you want to help support the show, see it grow, you're welcome to donate via Lightning, and the address to send to is btcvsthebanks at fountain.com. That's F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N dot F-M.